looking at chapter one. Last week we did an overview of the whole bio, uh, the whole book, all four chapters, only forty eight verses. And before we go, I noticed I split the sermon, so the titles changed. If there is a new title, it, well, there is. It would be The Mystery of the Disobedient Prophet. The Mystery of the Disobedient Prophet. And there will also be a hymn change at the end. Sometimes I get a little excited and forget that I changed things. So the musicians will, I'm sure, correct me if I just keep plowing on. But we'll be singing There is a Fountain, 253. Let's go ahead and read the first three verses, and then we will pray and, and, and get into God's Word. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call it against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Please pray with me. Father, we come and we sit under your word, this, this text, which was written over 2,000 or 2,500 years ago. And we ask that you would teach us, as we see your mercies to Jonah, something about ourselves and the kind of God that you are. And so, Spirit, work in our lives. Make us hungry tonight. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, on Friday night, Elizabeth was sick. And I was starting to feel a little sick. It was the last vestiges of a stomach bug that was going through our kids. And we didn't get it too bad, just a little upset. And, and so Elizabeth was in bed as I was giving the kids supper. And so I, I put on a little uh, Disney. Right now I have a Disney subscription. And I played a movie that shows my age. I saw it in the theaters called The Rescuers Down Under from the 90s. And you don't have to know the, the, the plot. But about five seconds in when they show this guy named McLeach, I asked Sammy, Sammy, is he a good guy or a bad guy? He said, oh, he's a bad guy. And McLeach was a poacher, and it got a little too intense to him, so I, I, I put on the, the new Star Wars, which, come to think about it, might not have been any better. I don't know. But, but um, I had heard from a review that there are these Inquisitors that are hunting Jedi, and so as the three of them come out of the shuttle, I say, Sammy, are they good guys or are they bad guys? He says, oh, they're, they're bad guys. They're definitely bad guys. You know, sometimes it's satisfying to have those black hat, white hat characters. You just, you just know where you stand in the story. And, and you know, actually, the Bible does that sometimes by focusing on one aspect of a person. So Daniel, we, we know he wasn't perfect, but it, it shows Daniel as this upright, righteous, uncompromising person and just focuses on his faithfulness. You'll see this also in Chronicles, where the chroniclers will focus more on the good of what the king has done, and they know what the kings have done wrong, but you can go to kings for that. And that's perfectly legitimate. And in fact, you know, it's actually reminding us that one day in Christ, we won't be 2D cutout characters, but we'll be 3D characters that are totally good, completely righteous, right? Consistently good in the new heavens and the new earth. So you know, it's kind of a reminder of that. But you can you emphasize that you can do that. But we can also realize and we should realize that this side of heaven, we are complex in different ways. We're, we're very complex characters. You know, for for the believer, there's the interplay of our old, old nature fighting against our new nature. And, and even in the unbeliever who doesn't know the Lord, you have their sin nature, but you have God's common grace restraining sin. And so 
we have these mixed motives and emotions that so even our good works contain sin and even our worst works are not as bad as they could be. Instead of being a Disney hero or villain, I think we're much more like someone in an Agatha Christie novel. If you're familiar with Agatha Christie, the, the queen of mystery, I like to call her, but she would write these complex plots with intricate characters. Now, you might know the protagonist pretty well if it was a series, but the characters would start out unknown, a little flat. But then as you go down the story, you develop layers and layers to their personality and motivations until the end when much of them is revealed and all of a sudden you get to know them. I believe Jonah and its characters is much more like an Agatha Christie novel than a Disney story. Now, now in some ways, Jonah already starts off as a complex character, but you will see as the characters, as they develop more and more as the story unfolds. I just had to give, I'm going to read this quote, see if anyone can identify it. It's from a famous American novel, Hint. Who said this? Or you could say, who is the author? Shipmates, this book containing only four chapters, four yarns, is one of the smallest strands in the mighty cable of the scriptures. Yet what depths of the soul does Jonah's deep sea line sound? What a pregnant lesson to us is this prophet. What a noble thing is that canticle in the fish's belly. How villa-like and how boisterously grand. Anyone know who, who said that? Where that's from? Yes, the, the English major. Yes, it's the preacher from Moby Dick by Hervin Melville. He, he, he interweaves the story of Jonah through that, that novel. And the point the preacher's making here is Jonah, it's a, small, it's a small story, but it's not a simple one. And so our idea tonight, the sermon point, is that we want to marvel at God's mystery, the mystery of God's mercy for complex characters who need his grace. Marvel at the mystery of God's mercy for complex characters who need his grace. And I pray that as you and I get to know Jonah especially tonight and his personality, you will see God's grace in a deep and rich way. That's not just flat or theoretical that's up there, but it's connected. And so as you see that working out, you can see the same thing in your life. As you come to terms with who you are, the way God works his mercy to you takes on a, rich, or a richer and fuller wonder. That's what we're, we're going to be. That's our goal tonight. So this sermon, we're going to spend some time getting to know the characters in Jonah. And I, I even debated on whether to have a sermon like this. Often when I'm preaching, I will just wrap in background and context as we're going through the text. And I think that's a, usually a very helpful way of doing it. Um, but uh, we will do that. But I decided to preach a sermon here just exploring some of the characters because the original readers would already know what we're learning tonight. This is all common knowledge. So it's what we're covering tonight are things that the readers would have brought with them into the text and they would have had it to understand it. So I want us to have that same vantage point. So tonight we're going to examine Jonah and the pagans around him and get to know them a little better and then even begin to ask, what does this tell us about who God is? So verses 1 and 2 introduce the main characters in the stories, the Lord, the Jonah, and the Gentiles that, that he interacts with. And the entire book balances on this knife's edge of tension right from the beginning. It starts, now the word of the Lord comes to Jonah. As I said last week, that argues, I think, for the historicity of the book. That's a historical book. That's, that's a phrase that talks about God acting in history. And the response is simple yet unthinkable to the readers. I want you to complete this thought in your mind. If you were a, a, a well-read Israelite reading this book, the word of the Lord comes to Jonah, arise, go to Nineveh. First time, complete the thought. 
what would you expect? You would expect, and Jonah arose and went to Nineveh as the Lord commanded. Turn with me to 1 Kings chapter 17. Now, 1 Kings chapter 17 is the beginning of Elijah's ministry as he's challenging Ahab, who is bringing the false god Baal into Israel. And we're going to read nine verses. Listen to how Elijah responds to the Lord. This is page 299, if you're in the Pew Bibles. 1 Kings 17, starting at verse 2. See if this sounds familiar. And the word of the Lord came to him, Elijah, Depart from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook Cherith, which is east of the Jordan. You shall drink from the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord. He went and lived by the brook Cherith, that is, the, that is east of the Jordan. And the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning, and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. And after a while, the brook dried up because there was no more rain in the land. Continuing just a little further... Then the word of the Lord came to him, Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there, as I have commanded. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to feed you. So he arose and went to Zarephath. Now God commands Elijah twice. This is just about a hundred years before Jonah's time. And he goes. And I would note here, these are two unusual commands. He is eating from food brought from ravens, therefore it's ritually unclean. And then he's going to a people who are ritually unclean. God is asking him to do some unusual things. And that would be the pattern, right? God would command the prophets, the faithful prophets, to to do some pretty wild and uncomfortable things sometimes as a sign to their people. And and sometimes the prophets would even negotiate. There was times that Jeremiah was told to eat starvation rations and cook it over human dung as a sign of, this is what's going to happen to you in the cities because of your unfaithfulness. He says, Lord, that is so gross. Could we do something different? God says, all right, all right, animal dung. You can use animal dung. But Jeremiah still obeys. Right? The, the, you have one task as the prophet of the Lord. Hear his word and carry it out. Might not be easy, but it is simple. So it's completely unthinkable when it says Jonah did the opposite. It's, it's full of irony because prophets are the covenant enforcers of, of Israel. When, when the people are not obeying, God would send a prophet to instruct them. So what do you do when a prophet doesn't obey? Do you send a prophet to the prophet? This is the whole tension of the book. How will God handle Jonah's disobedience? We'll spend the next sermon we have in this series looking at the effects of Jonah's disobedience. But let's do a little Agatha Christie work here. Let's drill down to the layers and find out a little bit more, like jo- a little bit more about Jonah. And Paul would be about ready for those slides. Why would Jonah do this? Well, just who is Jonah? You get next to nothing about Jonah from the book, and that's because I believe the author expects you to know. We'll we'll read a passage about that in a second. But I want to give you a very brief history and geography lesson about what happened 200 years before Jonah. So, Paul, do you have the first slide? Uh, Blank slide, thank you. So, I I don't expect you to be able to, to see everything here, but give us give us the outlines so this is the kingdom of david and then solomon from 1000 to 925 bc and J- david started with with judah and then and then he took israel joined him and then he uh, w- conquered the ammonites the edom moabites ammonites 
Right? You, you would be familiar with those if you read through the Old Testament. And then he had battles with the Arameans the, or the Syrians and even took control of this area. And then his son Solomon consolidated all the way, perhaps even up to here, maybe politically or, and economically, even if he didn't have garrisons there, which is, as we'll see, this is, this is the land of the Assyrians up here. And so this time, it's about 200 years before Jonah, is the golden time of the Israelite kingdoms where they have consolidated all the land and more that the Lord has promised and has great political and economic and military influence. Well, then the kingdoms divide, and we're getting closer now. This is, this is a blow-up, and so, so here's Judah, and it still controls Edom, and it's split. And so you have, you have King Rehoboam down here and King Jeroboam up here, and, and this is from about 925 to 840, so the next 80 years. And so now at this point, they still control Moab and, and most of their land. But you can see they've lost Ammon and they've, they've lost the, the Syrian territories. And then in about 40 years, let's see here, in 40 years, the Syrians come and, and really start to overrun much of the northern kingdom so that they are very reduced. And they only have this, this tiny little bit left. And this is from 840 to 800 B.C. Jonah might have even been alive in this part because his ministry is, is coming up in, in the late 700s. And then the Lord promises something. Let's, let's flip over to 2 Kings 14. And this is where Jonah is mentioned the other time in Scripture. 2 Kings 14, this would be page 321 if you have a pew Bible. This is the account of Jeroboam II, who is not related by blood to Jeroboam I. Starting at verse 23. In the 15th year of Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, began to reign in Samaria. And he reigned 41 years. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. He restored the border of Israel from Lebo Hamath as far as the Sea of Arabah, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke by his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet who was from Gath Hefer. For the Lord saw the affliction of Israel was very bitter. There was none left, bond or free, and there was none to help Israel. But the Lord had not said that he would blot out the name of Israel from under heaven, so he saved them by the hand of Jeroboam, the son of of Joash. By the way, I wanted to give credit to Hammond Maps. They're, they're no longer in business, but their rights have been bought, so just give credit under fair use. Um, these, these, these maps are actually from the 1950s, but I think they're still pretty helpful. And so you can see how the Syrians have come down here and taken large swaths. But under King Joash and then Jeroboam, which starts 785 to 740, they push back. He takes Moab, he takes the kingdom of Damascus, and, and it's possible that, that his influence extended up to where you see now the Assyrian Empire. By the way, if you're looking for Nineveh, it's probably over here. And so what you see here now is a sort of silver age for about 40 years. He also has control down to the sea, and so they're, they're able to um, they have access to the port there. And so in, in Jeroboam's time, we have this resurgence. That's good, Paul. You can, you can turn that off now. Thank you. So you have this, this political and economic resurgence of the kingdom of Israel. 
And Jonah is called the servant of the Lord, and he's the prop who gets to do the fun job of preaching God's material blessing to Israel through Jeroboam II. And you think about it, you're, how much opposition the prophets had. You're not going to get a lot of opposition. You say, hey, O king, the Lord's going to fulfill his promise to your great-grandfather, and he's going to use you to expand the borders. But at the same time, Israel is full of internal conflict. There's several decades of military and economic success, but they're far from the Lord. The northern kingdom is still, it mentions in 2 Kings, it's riddled with this idolatry. In verse 24, and Jeroboam did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all the sins of the first Jeroboam, who, when the kingdoms were split, he said you know, to his people, don't go to Jerusalem and, and worship there, because if, if they go there and worship religiously, then eventually their hearts are going to be swayed politically. I'm going to create calves and, and worship centers at Dan and Beersheba, and, and we'll worship the same God here, but not in the way that he commanded. And that was a great idolatry in starting away from the Lord. And so Israel is now prosperous, but they're also idolatrous. And instead of seeing this deliverance as a kindness from the Lord and returns to him, it, it would seem from other contexts that it confirms them in their idolatry, that the Lord is okay with what we're doing. In fact, Amos and other prophets at this time will denounce Israel for their comfort and luxury. By the way, doesn't that seem a little bit like America today? Perhaps we're just slightly in decline, um, but the Lord has blessed us greatly. Uh, there's, there's much godlessness in the land, but we could be tempted to view our material prosperity as oh, God's on our side. He's blessing us. Hmm. Not many things change sometimes. So this is Jonah's world. Israel's doing better than ever. You know, business is booming, battles are winning, and I got to be the guy who prophesied it would all happen. Now, we don't know exactly Jonah's heart. Did he wholeheartedly support King Jeroboam, even though there were, there were no changes to the worship? We don't know. But who wouldn't be glad to see that their nation is making a comeback? And, and, and be tempted to see this as a sign of God's favor, even approval of their spiritual state. Perhaps make the welfare of his nation more important than the will of God. We don't know, but you can see this is the tension in which Jonah lives. It's, it's actually the tension I feel as a soldier. I, I wear the American flag with pride on, on my uniform. I salute the flag at those times and ceremonies. And yet I, I realize that we are a country who has, has certainly not been perfect in the past and have not always followed God's laws, but are, are very quickly walking away from many of the structures. And there's that there's that tension there is, okay, I love my country, and yet, what do I do with this? And so this is the tension Jonah lives in, and then he gets this, arise and go to Nineveh. He must go to the hated Assyrians. Now, uh, Daniel Timner, in his book on Jonah, tells uh, several reasons why the Assyrians were hated. We've been talking about Hezekiah, so I've mentioned several times that the Assyrians were not nice people. But let me just quote them in their own words, how they used intimidation as one of their chief weapons. This is one of their kings saying, By the command of Asher, the god, and, and the goddess Ishtar, the great gods of my lords, I moved out of the city of Nineveh. I approached the city Suru. All of the radiance of Asher, my lord, overwhelmed them. The nobles and the elders of the cities came out to me to save their lives. I erected a pile in front of his gate. I flayed as many nobles as had rebelled against me and draped their skins over the pile. Some I spread out within the pile, some I erected on stakes upon the pile, and some I placed on stakes around about the pile. 
I flayed many right through my land and draped their skins over the walls. I slashed the flesh of the eunuchs and of the royal eunuchs who were guilty. I brought Ahiyababa, which is the ruler of sorrow, to Nineveh, flayed him, and draped his skin over the walls of Nineveh. And this is a relatively tame quote for the Assyrians. And, and, and these are the people that would make art about this kind of stuff in their palaces and, and in their temples. And, you know, you, you come as a perspective, you know, perspective ally and say, oh, by the way, this is how we view our enemies. So what do you think about that? And you can see why these are kind of people that you would love to hate. Notice how he mentioned Nineveh as a city of strategic importance. Now, Nineveh won't be the capital until about 75 years after the time of Jonah, but it was a very important city. And not only was Nineveh known for their extreme brutality, but they linked their conquest to the worship of their king Asher. So theologically, they were in direct opposition with Israel and their their belief of Jehovah. In their hymns, they would say, Asher is king. Asher is king. This is in direct contrast to Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, Yahweh, or God, Elohim, I think it's in the the Hebrew text. But in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God has dominion over everything. And to make matters worse, Israel is already on the receiving end of Assyrian dominion. Now, it didn't show in the maps up there because the Assyrians hadn't actually conquered, but they already extended influence. So 50 years before Jonah, King Jehu, which is Jeroboam II's great-grandfather, had to pay tribute to the Assyrians in 841 BC, and then his father, King Joash, 15 years before, had to pay Assyrians tribute in 796 BC. And Jonah doesn't know it, but but 50 years or so after this time, whenever this was, the Assyrians will sweep through Israel and swallow it up and take it into exile, the northern kingdom in 722. So there's a lot of reasons that make sense for Jonah not to like the Assyrians. So Jonah, Assyrians. Gentiles, what do we learn about this? Well, what's first we learn about Jonah? Right, Jonah is a complex character, isn't he? He is a prophet who hears the word of the Lord. Second Kings calls him God's servant. From this, you can only infer that he has a relationship with the Lord. He loves him. And yet he's living in this time of tension where his love for his country and his hate for his enemies inform his motives for what is his unthinkable disobedience. This is, this is Jonah as, as we're going to see him walking through the, this, this book. What do you learn about the Assyrians? Well, if anyone's wearing a black hat in the beginning of the book, it's the Assyrians. And the Lord even says, call it against the city, for their evil has come out to me. And yet we will see by, by God's mercy and his common grace, there is a different side as well. So that's Jonah and the Assyrians. But what can we learn about the Lord in all of this? Marvel at the mystery of God's mercy for complex characters who need his grace. How does the Lord show his mercy to Jonah? Well, he gives this, this incredible assignment to show him his idolatry. It's the, the tension that we'll be exploring throughout the whole book. And, and you see, on one level, Jonah did love the Lord. And we'll see that. But on another level, we don't know. You can maybe guess that his love for his country or something else clouded his understanding of God's judgment and grace to where Israel, even though it's idolatry, in idolatry is not in or should not be in danger of judgment. And Assyria does not even deserve the offer of God's mercy. And so the Lord gives Jonah this difficult assignment to demolish his own idolatry and faulty understanding of grace. 
The Lord brings Jonah a task that will force his hand to confront the ugliness in his own heart and to show him that he too is in need of mercy. And isn't that what God does for us as he deals with us in, in the mixture of our own heart? Even, even as we serve him lovingly, we, we still see the, the sin that's mixed in there. And we are, we are complex characters that even, even in our good works, our Father shows us his mercy. I can only speak for myself here, but I, as, as I know myself, I hope a little bit more as the years go on, I see that tension as I'm now 40. You know, I, I, I'm very well aware of my limits and I'm a perfectionist, and so it drives me crazy, my limitations, if, if I'm just thinking about myself. I, I know at least some of my sins, and I would love to present myself as someone who's near flawless. I say near flawless, because come on, we know no one can be flawless. But I'd love to be near flawless. That's, that's the persona I would love to project. And in the past, this, this mask has chained me from taking risks. It's kept me from taking risks because I'm terrified to fail. What would I look like? It's kept me from acknowledging the depths of my continued need for grace. It, it keeps me from confessing my sins and limitations and asking God's people for help in prayer. And then when God answers it, it keeps me from praising him because that would, that would be admitting that I needed help in the first place. That's the mask of my complex character, right? A, a, a perfectionist who sees his limitations as a sinner. So what did God do for me? Well, he calls me to be a pastor where you can't hide. He, he brings about infertility in our marriage. He, he sends me on deployments. He gives me cancer to make it obvious to me how much I need his help from him and others and to break open my reluctance to admit it. And as God is prying off this, this mask of attempted near-flawless perfection, the burden goes away to perform. And there's a joy that is replaced by saying, yes, as I, as I, as I can you know, not maybe rejoice in my flaws and limitations this side of heaven, but admit them and come to grips with them, I can see God's mercy being poured into my life in ways that I didn't even understand, and it is incredible. And the Lord can bring difficult seasons or assignments into your life to stretch you, to challenge you. Maybe a limited view of His grace, or He's going to cause you to sacrifice and to serve, or to be served in a way that's going to draw you out to, to be both a bearer and a recipient of His mercy. And all to deepen your wonder and understanding of what He's, uh, understanding of what he's doing for you. Someone who's a very complex character. If Jonah thought that God's grace was for Israel only and not for the Gentiles. He, he forgot that his father Abraham was a Gentile who received God's electing mercy and that God promised his plan was to bless the nations through Abraham. Well, what can we learn about God from the Gentiles? Well, God shows in his command to Jonah and his actions that grace is not limited to one group or type of people. His compassion far extends beyond the likely candidates of Jonah, like Jonah, who, by the way, we find out need grace in the end. God and his plan and the timing expands his offer of mercy to those outside the family of Israel. And as we'll see later in the book, Jesus himself uses Jonah as a picture of his ministry. He talks about Jonah surprisingly a lot, about how God reaches out to those that we would think would be unlikely and unthinkable. So tonight, I want you to consider how, how has God shown me mercy? What's the mystery of God's mercy to me and my complex needs, my mixed faith, my impure motives, 
the times of tension, disobedience, hidden idolatry. Praise the Lord that we have our covenant God who pursues us through our high priest Jesus. I pray tonight that you just, you just focus on something and you walk away with a greater sense of wonder and humility that the Lord would save you in such incredible ways. And then we'll ask ourselves, who, who do I discount as being outside of God's mercy? And for Sunday school, we, we talked about Pride Month and, and, and the, 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 how the public education is, as, as one of our, our members rightly said, grooming our kids for ungodliness. Well, that's a big lie. It's serious and dangerous. But how do we view the individuals? You know, people who, who look very different, act differently. Have you ever looked at someone who said and thought, you are beyond God's mercy? Or maybe we wouldn't say it so stark, say there's a very low percentage that, that God will save you. In that case, in your thinking, you've undercut the transforming power of God's mercy. And be careful, the Lord just might send you on a mission like Jonah. Instead, let us look to ourselves first, see the mystery of God's mercies and say, if he saved me, then who can't he save? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this little book Rich, and as we're just starting and getting some of the background, we see a character who very much is human and very much is in need of your grace. We thank you that we are no different, that we have received a clear revelation in our Lord Jesus. We know how we have been brought to you, and we see how you've already moved through the world and and to the Gentiles, of which most of us ethnically would consider ourselves. Father, thank you for your mercy that you do not give up on us. We pray this week that you would send us out in wonder of who you are. And that would change the way that we look at ourselves and those around us. Amen.